0: This is Marginalia, a production of KMUW Wichita.
1: Marginalia,
0: notes in the margin of a
1: book. Notes, commentary, and similar material Marginalia. written in the margin Comments of a book. Comments and notes which are or incidental. incidental or additional, or additional, additional to the main topic
0: in the margin of a book.
1: Author Amor Tolls worked as an investment professional for over 20 years before he took the literary world by storm with his 2011 bestseller, Rules of Civility. And his 2016 novel, A Gentleman in Moscow, was on the bestseller list for two years. Toll's third novel, The Lincoln Highway, was released recently, and I spoke with the novelist about his work. I'm Beth Golay, this is Marginalia, and here's our conversation. Okay, so I just want to set up the novel for our listeners. Uh, The Lincoln Highway begins as 18-year-old Emmett Watson is being driven by the warden of a troubled youth farm in Salina, Kansas, back to his farm in Nebraska, where his father had recently passed away. And unbeknownst to either man in the car, two other young men, Duchess and Wooly, have stowed away in the trunk of the warden's car. And that's where the adventure begins. And I believe I read, is that where this adventure began for you? Was that the original idea for this book?
0: Yes, your your description was excellent, first of all. And yes, for me, the starting point was as simple as that. Boy returning from work farm, two friends from the work farm are hidden in the trunk of the warden's car, you know. And uh, in in the case of rules of civility, and A Gentleman in Moscow, it was very similar. It was a premise that could fit in a sentence, like guy gets trapped in hotel for a long period of time. And when I have a notion like that, uh, that really grabs me, what tends to happen is that I will start, I'll have a sense of the story behind that notion uh, pretty quickly. So some of it comes within the first few minutes. So in the sense that as soon as I had the notion of a guy trapped in a hotel, uh, I was like, oh, it's gonna be in Russia. It's gonna be an aristocrat, you know, uh, he's gonna be under house arrest in a fancy hotel. The, The book is gonna last 30 years. Like that was immediate, my instincts of that, the shape of that story and its focus. In the case of this, in the case of the Lincoln Highway, similarly, once I had the notion of the two kids in the trunk of the car, or the warden's car, I was like, oh, it's, it's going uh, to be in the Midwest. He's going to be returning to the family farm, and, uh, you know, one of the kids is going to be a harder, a harder kid from New York City, and uh, the whole story is only going to be 10 days, you know, a misadventure, as it were, and it's going to be set in the mid-50s. So that kind of rapidly comes into focus for whatever reason, and my instincts tell me that's where the story is. And then from there, I start to then imagine the various elements. And I kind of, I won't sit down to write chapter one until I can visualize almost the entire tale from beginning to end.
1: So as you mentioned, the book is set in the mid-50s, set in 1954, and it's, it's during a pivotal time in American and world history. And I saw on your website that that's precisely why you set it in 1954, because of all of the things that were about to happen?
0: Yes, all the things that weren't happening yet. <laughs> because you're right, in, in the, if you think of the trajectory of, of, of America in the 20th century, the Depression is the entire 1930s, and you shift immediately from the Depression into the Second World War. Uh, which then lasts in, into, uh, you know, 1945, but kind of trickles over in various ways culturally into the 46 and 47 as, as the boys are coming home, as it were. Um, so, you know, that's almost two decades in which the, uh, the Depression and the Second World War, two global events, significantly dislocating events, uh, affected the lives of every American, you know, and people throughout, uh, around the world. Um, suddenly, the Second World War ends, you sort of we have recovery of, of the economy in the United States. Uh, the boys come home and go to college and then start getting getting jobs, uh, you know, uh, you know, that sort of is happening. The Korean War starts but winds down by 1954. So what you have in the mid 50s is sort of a moment of quietude, as it were, in this, after this tumultuous 20 years. And uh, further, as you point, as you're, as you're mentioning, a whole series of major cultural events for America are about to happen. So the civil rights movement has been around in the United States since the inception of the nation, because it, it began with you know, slavery in a way. But the modern civil rights movement really is about to take off in 1954. And that's because 1954 was the Brown versus the Board of Education decision at the Supreme Court, which made separate but equal uh, illegal. Uh, and so desegregation became the law of the land really. And what you have is very rapidly then after that, you know, Rosa Parks refusing to give up her seat in the bus and, uh, and the you know, young men refusing to give up their seats in uh, you know, the Woolworths at the counter. Uh, and the rise of, of uh, Martin Luther King in, res- in response to these events to some degree as protests to support Rosa Parks and those young men uh, became public. And, and he began leading some of those protests and becoming a spokesperson for the times. So as I say, this is about to happen and it's going to define the next decade or the next 15 years leading up to eventually the Civil Rights Act in the mid-60s. Uh, at this moment in time, the sexual revolution is about to happen. You know, uh, 1954 is around uh, very close to uh, when uh, Hugh Hefner publishes the first issue of Playboy. You know, this notion of if I Make the pictures a little bit more glossy, and I have an interview, you know, with a, a, a former president, and I have a short story by a famous author. Playboy is not going to be a magazine sold in a paper bag the back door of an alley. It's going to be on the, you know, the living room coffee table. That was his, the cocktail table. You know, that was Hefner's uh, vision, and, and in a way, that's what happened, right? It became. He was kind of bringing that uh, sexuality into the public square. 1954 is when the Kinsey Report on Female Sexuality comes out. Again, sort of bringing sexuality in the public school. Within a few years, the pill will become available, and then the sexual revolution really takes off. But as I say, all this is kind of about to happen. Um, and I mentioned uh, probably the t- two biggest cultural influences of the second half of the 20th century in America are TV and rock and roll. And, and uh, TV is, begins in you know around 1950. But it's this back half of the fifties where it really takes off in terms of suddenly there's a television in 90% of the homes in the United States by the end of the 1950s. And so TV is ramping up as a cultural influence and rock and roll is invented in 1954. And that has huge uh, ramifications for not simply what's on the radio, but for how youth act in the United States. You know, the the youth movements of the sixties really spring from rock and roll. And I, and I think that, that rock and roll wasn't the soundtrack to the youth protests of the 1960s. It would, to some degree, was a cause because rock and roll provided the first platform really in the history of humanity for teens and for young you know, people in their late teens, early 20s to make art about their concerns, to perform it, and to have it reach their peers. You know, you think about that in the 19th century, teens weren't talking to each other. You know, they couldn't, they weren't writing books to each other or broadcasting information. So you take all the, the uh, 20th century anxieties that a teen felt, all their moral concerns, all their doubts about the way their parents did things, all their suspicions about institutions, all that that becomes instrumental to or central to the rock and roll message. And suddenly teens are expressing that, you know, 20 year olds are expressing that and it's being broadcast across the nation around the world for the benefit of other uh, teens and 20-year-olds who take in that and suddenly, as I say, movements grow out of that when you have the recognition that my concerns are shared by my peers across the country and uh, and, and my concerns are either informed by what I hear and the growing movement. So as I say, all this is about to come. So the mid-1950s is sort of this nice moment where, yes, I can kind of put the lens really on the interaction of uh, a group of 18-year-olds focusing on their character, uh, who there's a sense of these things that are about to come, um, but uh, they haven't really come over like a tidal wave over these young Americans who are thinking about their future.
1: I do want to talk about Lens because you know, last week you sent me an email that included a link to your site. You have a lot of background information on there. I was surprised to learn that you had initially intended to tell this story from two perspectives, Emmett's and Duchesses, but instead you expanded it to eight different voices, which really adds a richness to the story. And I'm thinking of the scene where Duchess stops at the Empire State Building to teach Billy a lesson, but yes. we only learn of Duchess's intent from Wooly's perspective. And so, could you talk to me about how how that expansion of perspective affected you as a writer and did you have a favorite lens to, you know, to look through or to write from?
0: Uh you're absolutely right that when I set out to write this book. And I mean, mean, when I was sitting down to write chapter one, and and as I implied earlier, I am someone who designs a book over a period of years to imagine it fully. I write a very detailed outline before I start the first chapter. So I know everything that's going to happen and how it's going to happen and, you know, all kinds of the settings, the characters, the events, the tone, you know, that's kind of all laid out for me when when I'm beginning to write the book. When I began to write the book, it was designed as a story that we go back and forth over 10 days between events from Emmett's perspective and Duchess's perspective. The, you know, two central characters who are very different in their upbringing and personalities. And, and so you'd kind of have this shifting back and forth between these two different types of Americans who are sharing these events over the 10 days, uh, basically. And what ended up happening, and that was really, I was well into about a third of the way into the book. <laughs> Uh, with that as my plan. And um, and what ended up happening is that Billy, the younger brother, is going to encounter on a train uh, two characters, uh, a Pastor John, who's sort of a a sort of a, a dangerous sort of figure, a little bit of a con man as preacher, and, and an African-American uh, veteran named Ulysses. And as I Sat down in with my notebooks to begin crafting those uh, scenes. What ended up happening is I immediately began telling them from the perspectives of Pastor John and from Ulysses, and there I could hear their voices so strongly, and uh, that it was just the natural thing was to tell it from their perspectives and to hear how their voices contrasted. Well, then it's like uh, letting in you know, opening Pandora's box, you know the genie was out of the bottle. Once I suddenly added these two other voices, I was like, you know, the reality is that I know Sally's voice so strongly in the early part of the book. We meet her and we hear her and get a sense of her from Emmett's perspective as he is watching her and talking to her, but we're not really hearing her take, but I know it. And uh, and Wooly is just sort of this quiet and I think a very beautiful character. sort a sad character with very sort of wonderful way of looking at the world in, in this kind of offbeat way. And she's a, a child of privilege, but also uh, you know, a, a child who's lonely and feels lost. And, and I knew that too, but that doesn't really come across from when the other characters look at him. They have a sense of it, but they don't really know the richness of how he sees the world because he is kind of quiet. And so I knew that the story needed, we needed to hear both of them you know, so I began crafting the woolly and Sally chapters, and I went back to the beginning of the book and, and, you know, started over in a way integrating their views into the second day and from then forward. Um, And and so slowly over time, it suddenly became a book of eight voices. Now, uh, at this point, it is impossible for me to imagine this book as being told from just the voices of Emmett and Duchess, and it would be a much less interesting book, I think, for the reader, uh, a book that would be was much uh, less rich, uh, uh, much less interesting and compelling. Because um, I do think the various voices bring a lot of texture to the story. You know, I am someone who uh, I take, I'm very interested in perspective and in point of view and how, uh, when you're adopting a new perspective or point of view, how it shapes every aspect of the narrative. You know, in Rules of Civility, Katie's voice defines the tone and tenor of that book, as does the Count's personality and upbringing define the tone and tenor of a gentleman in Moscow. And those books are very different as a result of that, because those two characters have very different personalities, very different upbringings, and therefore have different vocabularies, a different sense of poetics, a different sense of what they would observe when they walked into a room, a different way to judge other people, you know, or or assess other people. And so here, you're you're suddenly in a book where I was already knew the Emmett and Duchess versions, what their tone would be, what their vocabulary, what their poetics, what their perspectives. And suddenly you open the door and you're adding these various voices. And, And that's a risky thing to some degree, because if you have to make sure that you can hear all of those eight people well, distinctly, you have to make sure that the reader is going to be able to follow those different stories and not become distracted or confused. And uh, so that's, it becomes a little bit of a delicate, you know, game. And, uh, and but, but as I say, I'm, I'm glad that's the direction in which the rafting went.
1: As I was reading this, I, I wondered if it could be classified like, you know, like as a, as a picaresque novel. And then my producer said that in some ways it felt like a, a coming of age novel, but in other ways it felt more like a returning to childhood novel, especially for, you know, Willie and, and, possibly Duchess as well. But then I learned another word from your website, Buildings Ramon. It's It's a German term. Of course it is. Because they have a word for everything.
0: (laughs) Yes, Yes, famously.
1: It's in which the transition from youth to adulthood for the main characters is compressed from years into a matter of days. So can you talk to me about the, you know, maybe the transformative nature of these 10 days and how it affected some of your characters?
0: Sure. And let me say, first of all, I like the fact that you and, and your colleague, or is it a picaresque? Is it a coming of age story? <laughs> is, you, know, it a, you know, is it a suspense story? I, you know, nothing makes me happier than to think that it's, it's it's all of these things and others too, you know. But certainly uh, as a novel where the four of the central characters are around the age of 18, um, that brings with it very specific Implications uh, because the that point in our lives is is a very specific point and, and uh, in that I in the way I look at it is sort of from zero to 16 roughly something like that our lives are really defined by. Uh, we are receiving all kinds of external influences that are shaping us intentionally so you know our parents are shaping us, telling us, you know, what is right and wrong and how we should act and, and, you know, praising one aspect of ourselves and, you know, criticizing another, you know, what have you, supporting us, you know, or, or reigning us in, but our experience in church is influencing us, our experience in school is influencing us, you know, our, our greater community. You know, if we grow up in the Midwest, that's very different than if we grow up in New York City or if we grow up in L.A. And you know, that greater community is, is shaping us, too. And all those things are kind of coming into our, into our consciousness from 0 to 16. You know, and we're it's an almost a passive dynamic. We're just receiving it, and we're being shaped by it. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, you know, around 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, it turns around, and we, we realize as individuals, wait a second, wait a second, you know, I'm in charge of this process. You know, I get to decide who I am and what I want and what I think is right and wrong. And, and when the individual kind of goes through that moment in time and they start to think about the future, more taking possession of the future for themselves. uh, Some of those things which influence them, they may be very aware of and they may say, okay, I believe these things. I'm going to carry that with me in the future. Some they may reject you know, and say, I don't believe that. Or, you know, some kids want to be just like their dads and some kids want to be the opposite of their dads, you know, uh, based on whatever experience they had. Um, sometimes they're not as conscious about those influences. So they may shape their future uh, in, in contrast to, to how they've been uh, uh, raised or in complement to how they've been raised without even really thinking about it. But either way, they're suddenly in the driver's seat. And um, so, yes, when you're telling a story about a bunch of 18-year-olds, You know, even in a 10-day window, uh, we can sort of glimpse as, you know, as readers, as observers, how this has happened, how these, you know, what kinds of, we get a sense of what are the decisions that these young people are making for themselves at this point? How are they going to now attack the future? What about their past are they going to accept? What about their past are they going to reject? What are the things they're not even aware of that have shaped them? And it, part of the, the nature of the book is, is you look at the three male characters, uh, Emmett and Duchess and Wooly. they're kind of like three different parts of America. Emmett was raised in a farm in the Midwest. Uh, you know, uh, Duchess is raised in a, and is a very sort of honorable young man, uh, very practical in many ways. Duchess is, is raised in uh, lower New York. Uh, by a father who was a Shakespearean actor at one time, but then was kind of on the vaudeville stage you know, because things didn't work out. And then he you know, was kind of a quasi con man and a drunk, you know, by later in his life. And uh, so Duchess has been exposed to that, you know, kind of the rough and tumble, fast talking aspect of lower New York, where everybody is, you know, is, uh, is exaggerating or fast talking or trying to get by. And, and he's, he's taken that in. And, and Wooly is a, is a kid of privilege from New York who's really been raised in sort of the boarding schools environment. And you know, that's, that's a whole nother type of upbringing in, in America that with its own ethos, its own vocabulary, its own uh, sense of, of, of self. And so you have these sort of three different uh, young Americans from very different backgrounds kind of together, but, but looking at the world and thinking about their futures in very different ways. And then, yes, Sally too. You know, as a young woman from the Midwest, uh, she's, you know, I think is just as strong as the other characters, even though she may have a little less space.
1: Okay, so this might be a good time to talk about structure because, of course, I didn't pay attention to the index. So I didn't realize this was a countdown until I thought that I was reading out of order and I stopped to investigate. So talk to me about the decision to make the timeline a countdown.
0: And this this will sound a little weird to your listeners, perhaps. but uh, oh, okay. <laughs> no, I think, I think it sounds a little weird to me. but but uh, when I designed the book, the notion was ten days. It's right from the start. And so each section was called you know day one, day two, day three, day four, And within each section you'd hear from the different characters, you know, initially two, but then more. Um, and, you know, that's the way it was structured, and that's the way I was writing it, and I got to about the midpoint, and I was feeling a little frustrated with the progress of the book. I, I wasn't convinced that I was on the right track. I felt that uh, some of the material i had written wasn't quite right. Some of the chapters weren't working. I wasn't exactly sure of that where I was, that I was headed in the right direction, that the reading experience was going to be the, you know, uh, a good one, for, you know, for the reader. So, in essence, I had the classic midpoint of book Crisis of confidence, which happens, you know, and you're like, oh my God, am I? Is this, this whole thing's a mess, you know, and and uh, maybe the whole thing's a mistake, and you know, maybe I'm going to move on to another project. So in a, in a moment like that, you got to back off, you leave the material on the desk for a, you know a couple of days, and and dwell on it, sort of, is ask, try to reset, and sort of think, what what is this thing, and is it worth working through, and and what's wrong with it, how can I repair it, and in the course of that sort of interlude away from the book. I, you, you have. I had sort of a little revelation, and this is the part that sounds going to sound weird to, the, to your listeners. My revelation was, oh, you know, these ten sections. They shouldn't be called day one, day two, day three, day four. They should be called 10, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, 1. Because in, in many ways, this book is. It is a countdown. It's. It's a book about running out of time. It's a book about you know the way a countdown. I love the thing about a counting down from ten is we use it to, in anticipation of launching a rocket ship. We use it, you know, in anticipation of launching the new year, and we also use it in the boxing ring to, you know, to conclude the fight, you know. And you can also say, well, the countdown at, year, at New Year is is to using to end the last year. So which is it? Is it beginning in the future? Is it ending in the past? You know, it's doing both of those things. So the countdown can play both of these roles. And uh, but so as soon as I thought that, I went back and I changed from day one. I turned it into ten. I changed day two to nine. I turned day three to eight. I changed nothing else in terms of the sequence of events. But that shift allowed me to go back and start to think from the beginning, the tone of the story, the sequence of events, the urgency of different occurrences, and the the back half of the book, where we were all headed, um, it allowed me to kind of sharpen the first half of the book in, in service of this uh, concept. And, you know, by the time I got to the second half, it was just a zipping along through the five, four, three, two, one, as I'm, as me, as as I'm running out of time, the character's running out of time, and and you're going to feel that, hopefully, as a reader. Now, when I was done with the book, I always thought, okay, great, when I'm done, I'll go back and put day one, day two, day three, day four, because, you know, that was just to help me kind of uh, structure the book in my head and think about it. And so I did that. I went back and changed it. And then I thought, wait, why am I changing this back? You know, why wouldn't the reader get to hear what, what I heard, what, what, what benefited me? And and so I went so I restored this sort of weird, you know, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1 countdown into the book for the reader. And one of the things I love about it is that, you know, when you open a book and it says chapter one, you have no idea how many chapters that book has. It could have 50, it could have two, you know. And, you know, eventually along the way, you sort of get a feel for, ah, oh, it's probably a 40-chapter book or, you know, whatever. But you really don't know. And, uh, but when you go in reverse, you say 10, 9, 8, you know, the reader knows. The reader knows exactly how many sections, how many uh, uh, days are left. And so they can feel that sense of, of them of running out of reading time. And, and whatever events are occurring now are occurring in this lens of, of uh, sort of temporal uh, uh, phase. But, you know, so that's where that came from.
1: So the characters in your book, their adventures parallel at times, famous fictional characters and historical works like Ulysses, who left his bride and child to fight in a war and now hops from train to train, never staying in any one place more than one night. And many of the characters paralleled are included in the fictional Professor Abernathy's compendium. Yes. You know, to me, this really felt like a love letter to the epic adventure story. Was there one particular work that inspired this tale? No, I, but but you're, you're, I think you're right in the general
0: sense that, that uh, storytelling is a very important part of this narrative, for better or worse, and and it goes back to that notion of the shaping of individuals pre-18 and, and, and the degree to which they then reshape themselves going forward. Uh, you know, I mentioned the church, the family, the you know, uh, school, is, but stories are a big part of that. And, and whether those stories are, you know, the stories in the Bible, the stories that our parents tell us about their own lives, the, the stories that we read in books, you know, or that we see in movies, these are all a part of that shaping process when we're younger, and uh, and and defined to some degree how we see the world. And I so I I knew that in in crafting this story, that the different characters who in a way have different narratives that have shaped them, and. And, and uh, Duchess's father, you know, made a living giving Shakespearean monologues and uh, for, you know, for low money. But, but I kind of knew that, therefore, Duchess, even though he had a rough and tumble life and he's not a you know well-read kid by any means, um, he's heard these Shakespearean monologues a million times. He's never seen the plays. Right? So he kind of has this weird sort of thing. He's, he's been influenced by, you know, the, the, the to, to be or not to be speech, but not really knowing the context in which that speech was given. And he knows its vocabulary and he knows kind of its tone. And um, so so that's influence for Duchess. You know, Sally is clearly a churchgoer and talks about, you know, the uh, about her current experience in biblical terms often, you know, and, and, and almost with a biblical sort of uh, tone, you know, at times. Whereas Billy has this, you know, book that he's of Twenty-six adventurers, and and that shapes him. And the way that you know, young kids, we all kind of might grab onto that book that we read over and over and over. And whether it's a collection of fairy tales at a certain age, or you know, now the you know these great series that are, are published uh, for young adults, and you know, Harry Potter and and those that have come since, um, and that shape our imagination and help influence our ethos, entertain us, allow us to aspire to certain things we wouldn't have aspired to before. Uh, you know, that's all part of that. And so, yes, because this is in the 50s, he doesn't have access to the late 20th century versions of that, you know, in the 50s, your heroes would have been uh, figures from American history or from American sports or from, you know, from uh, classic mythology. And that, that's kind of what he is, is exposed to. So when you, once that's in there, then you're, yes, you're, you're, you're discovering all kinds of, uh, all parallels start to pop up for the reader, some of which are intentional, some of which are not, they're popping up for me and become a part of the uh, of the, of my storytelling. They get absorbed by, you know, me in the process of telling the tale.
1: So Salina, Kansas features prominently in the book, but since the novel begins in, in media's race or in the middle of the thing, the Kansas scenes occur either in memory or off the page. So you've been, you've been to Kansas before. Was this, was this novel a nugget in your mind when you were here or did you, did you even have to research much about Kansas to be able to write some of those scenes? Uh, and, and,
0: and, of course, the book opens in Nebraska. Which so, so, you know, it, it's, it has, a you know, in a way, more time is spent in Nebraska than, than right. in Salina. Um, I have a, a close friend in New York who's from Salina. I have three close friends in New York who were raised in Kansas, you know, basically in farms or, or budding farms. And uh, so you, you have impressions, you know, that, that uh, I've certainly been to the Midwest throughout my life. My father was from St. Louis. So I went to St. Louis every year as a child, um, and my father was from from uh, just out, was from the city proper or just outside the city. So it wasn't like he grew up on a farm, um, but you know my grandmother was raised in St. Louis, and, you know, in the Depression era, et cetera, and so so you kind of inherit these uh, these senses of of the Midwest and that add to your uh, perhaps your misjudgments, but but nonetheless. <laughs> add to your delusion that you, you that you think you know what you're talking about. Um, uh, but yeah, but as I say, so, so for all, any of those reasons, the Midwest seemed a natural place for me to start the story. Of course, Grapes of Wrath, it's, you know, uh, an extraordinary book and one that begins in the Midwest and, and has west. You know, whereas this book, you know, begins in the West and heads east. Uh, and, um, you know, so that's kind of very natural. I love the fact that Salina, Kansas, and to, to a lesser degree, uh, the, the town that, uh, in Nebraska where this starts, uh, which is kind of based on Aurora, but is renamed Morgan, uh, which is both words for mourning. But at any rate, they're basically in the middle of the country. I mean, Salina is almost dead center north, from a north-south standpoint and an east-west standpoint. So it's very natural kind of try to to start a story about America in the pinpoint in the middle, you know, and have these kids be where where are we going next? You know, and uh, any direction is, 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 is viable, you know, from that center point.
1: So as the title suggests, the majority of this novel takes place along the Lincoln Highway. And I saw some of the images of you in front of a, a Lincoln Highway sign in Nebraska on your website. Have you traveled the length of the Lincoln Highway?
0: Definitely not, because uh, it does go from Times Square to New York, uh, to San Francisco. Um, I, but I, uh, and I, what I like to do is, I, as I said, I don't research for my books. But when I'm done writing a first draft, I do like to go out and do some certain uh, applied research or kind of build a list of things I want to do and see. And, and so I'd never spent a night in the Metropole Hotel when I wrote A Gentleman in Moscow. And then I flew to Moscow with the first draft and lived in the hotel for a while. Um, same, similar here, I finished the first draft, and then I flew out to Nebraska and uh, rented a car and went to, you know, Aurora and uh, began working my way uh, east along the the Lincoln Highway. And, and the, while the Lincoln Highway is is a figure in the book and discussion, there's a lot of discussion about the route from. Nebraska to San Francisco, the characters never go on that leg. So it was it felt less central to me to see that leg in person at that time. But I did want to see kind of, as you were leaving a you know, small town in the middle of Nebraska, and you started following the Lincoln Highway, I wanted to get a better sense of what it would feel like. And so uh, and that was fun to do.
1: So as I mentioned, you, you have so much information on your website. In the Lincoln Highway Q&A section, there's a photo of four notebooks. And one says unfinished business with a date and the other three are labeled Lincoln Highway. What are we looking at there?
0: Uh, so I, I do, um, I use notebooks not to write an entire novel, but often to, uh, to go through the design process where I'm beginning to think about scenes and characters and the plot and events. I often use notebooks to generate the beginning of chapters so I kind of know what's going to happen in a chapter, but I don't really know yet what it sounds like or how the chapter is going to be oriented or what themes are going to come to the surface in the course of that chapter. And so I will—I often find that, that working in a notebook helps me start that. I will often do that. I'll have lunch alone. I'll work at my desk from 8 to noon in the morning uh, in New York, and, but then I'll go out to a restaurant and have lunch by myself at the bar of a restaurant and with my notebooks very often. And, uh, and I'll sort of ask myself, okay, I know that tomorrow I'm going to start writing, you know, the chapter uh, in which, you know, Willie is in New York City and his sister is going to, you know, see him and they're going to have sort of an interaction. And, and then you kind of, I'll bring the notebook and I'll say, where is it going to be? And I'll say, oh, you know, maybe it'll, maybe it'll be because of Willie. It's F.A.O. Schwartz. That's what it's going to be. And, you know, and, and yeah, even better, he's going to be In F. A. O. Schwartz, uh, and he's going to be in front of uh, a cabinet of miniature furniture. I think that's where I came from. I think I saw a piece of miniature furniture. I was like, "Yeah, that's right. That's a wooly thing." And he's 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 admiring the, the ingenuity and precision of these little dollhouse pieces of furniture that are made, you know, with exacting detail. And he's kind of celebrating that, and and then kind of remembering that you know that he would come to F. A. O. Schwartz as a child, and uh, at christmas time with his grandmother who sort of let them go and pick up you know uh, a present and i realized oh yeah his sister's gonna find him here knowing that he would go there because he must have gone there in the past and you know uh, more than once and because he loves it so much and uh, so so as i say you, i start with i know that they're gonna have this interaction in new york city and maybe i even knew it was gonna be fio schwartz but that's all i know but then when i sit down with the notebook I'll start to ask myself some questions and start to visualize. And then suddenly I'm off to the races. Then you're like, oh, okay, I got it, you know. And then, you know, the first sentence is something like, you know, Willie was in his favorite place in F.A.O. Schwartz, which is saying something, you know, because there's a lot of favorite things in F.A.O. Schwartz. And, and you kind of start to write by hand, imagining him in front of the case and the implications of the furniture and how you would interpret it, you know, as the sister suddenly is there by his side. And, and so that gets me started. And that way the next morning I can type in, in essence, those paragraphs I've written by hand and sort of fix them a little bit as I go, um, but then you know I'm, it's it's not about uh, I don't have a blank page staring at you know and, and from there I can begin to work on the chapter in greater detail you know so yes I, I will tend to use notebooks on that basis and you're right the, the the oldest notebook in that pile that I took a photograph of on the title on the front it says unfinished business because that was the original title of the book when I started designing it and before I had discovered. That the Lincoln Highway exists. But as soon as I sort of stumbled on the Lincoln Highway and a map of the Midwest, I I was like, Oh, my God, you know, this is, this thing's a gift. This (laughs) this crazy highway and its history is a gift to me as a symbol to be at the center of the book.
1: That was Amor Tolles, author of the book, The Lincoln Highway, which was published by Viking. Thanks for joining us for Marginalia. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editor is Luann Stevens, and our producers are Haley Krausen and Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay.